This podcast is brought to you by NAB. More than money. Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. To begin this week's episode, we break down the results of Domain's latest school zone report. We then delve into the conditions that have fostered Hobart's strong property market activity. And to wrap up another season of the block, we recap all the action from the unexpectedly huge auction results over the weekend. For many parents, selecting a school for your children to attend is one of the biggest decisions you'll make for them. For parents wanting to send their children to a local public school, living within the right catchment area and praying its borders don't change over time is also a huge consideration. And then there's the premium you have to pay with some school zones seeing above average price growth, according to the latest Domain School Zone report. Here to unpack the report is Ellen Lutton, National News Editor at Domain. Welcome back to the podcast, Ellen. Thanks for having me. Now, Ellen, before we jump into some of the findings, can you tell us a little bit about the report and what sort of some of the good juicy bits are from it? Sure. Look, essentially what this report does is lay out school zones in each of the capital cities and tell us what the median house price is within it and whether house prices in that catchment have gone up or down over the past year. So it's it's based on public school catchments only, so it doesn't take into account any demand that private schools may have had on prices. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to note that a school catchment's median house price is different to a suburb's median house price. Some school catchments span over multiple suburbs. Some catchments may only take in half a suburb. So I guess that's why this data is so important and helpful for parents or potential parents, people who are super organised, because as those who have done the school catchment search will already well know, buying into a particular suburb is no guarantee of getting into the local public school. Mm. I mean, for instance, you could be one street outside of the catchment even if you're in the suburb of the same name and you and your child miss out. So these invisible lines, they're quite powerful and in some suburbs can actually mean the difference of $100,000 between one street and another, even when they're in the same suburb. So, look, that's why this data is so useful because, you know, it's very black and white. You can see what's happening with prices within these invisible lines. Mm. Now, Alan, looking across the capital cities, are there certain areas where school catchments are seeing particularly strong growth? Yeah, look, the data is showing by and large that parents competing to buy a home in their preferred school zones have pushed house prices sort of sky high, despite the impact of coronavirus. Even a global (laughs) pandemic cannot stop a determined parent. (laughs) Look, interestingly, across all of the capital cities, the catchments with the biggest increases in house prices, they were quite spread out across the inner, middle and outer suburban locations. It's not just your inner city, super wealthy suburbs. Look, I think that suggests that no matter where you live, school catchments are important. Um, And school zone performance varied enormously. Um, What's interesting is there were neighbouring catchments that sort of provided really different outcomes for homeowners. So some school zones in the same postcode or suburb or with overlapping catchment zones had really different sort of 
direction of house price movement. You know, some of them really went up, some of them hardly went up at all and others sort of went down, which I suppose highlights the effect that falling into a particular school catchment zone can potentially have on property prices. Access to good schools is one of the many factors that can boost the appeal of an area. Is there much of a correlation between popular school catchment zones and stronger price growth? Look, anecdotally, this is what we're hearing from agents constantly. While our data did not take into account the performance or the academic performance or popularity of a school, it just looks at the catchment zone and its house price growth only. We do know anecdotally that schools can be a massive driver of price growth. You know, the more sought after a school is, the more demand there is for property within that catchment. Of course, once demand outstrips supply, prices rise. And look, it's not just about the academic performance of a public school as well. I think that's important to point out um, that can have parents dying to get into a catchment. It may be a school that specialises in a certain area or is known for its wonderful community service or funding, you know, for children with special needs. Um, Or it might just have a lovely bunch of teachers that draws parents to it. There's all these different, you know, reasons people want to be in a school catchment zone above and beyond you know, pure academic performance. Um, You know, in Brisbane, one of the school catchments with the highest house price growth over the past year, Tingalpa State School, it has a French-Australian bilingual program, the only one of its kind in the state. House prices in that school catchment rose by a massive 25.6% over the last year, whereas house prices in the suburb of Tingalpa have only gone up 2% over the year. So, you know, that could perhaps be an instance of the school catchment more so than the suburb itself that's drawing buyers in. Another example, in Sydney, the median house price in the catchment for Willoughby Girls High School on the Lower North Shore, it's gone up by 28.6% over the past year. Now, this is a school that consistently ranks among the top schools in the state for HSC results. In 2018, it was ranked first among all comprehensive public schools in New South Wales. In Melbourne, one of the top performing catchment zones for house price growth was Turat Primary School. Prices there went up 25% over the past year. And look, while that would suggest that the school has had some impact on people's property decisions and the prices they'll pay, it's also very likely you know, the growth there can be attributed to other factors too. You know, Turak is one of Melbourne's most sought-after suburbs. You know, it's long established as a record-breaking market in its own right. I think it's important to note here that house price growth can be attributed to so many factors, you know, location, amenities, the state of the economy, local infrastructure, school catchments, you know, they're one piece of the puzzle, albeit a very important one. Ellen, just before you mentioned a primary school in the mix there, is there much difference Mm. in demand for properties in primary and high school catchment areas? Look, it seems to depend on the city you're in, although I would say that the data suggests when it comes to public school catchment zones influencing property decisions, I think it often begins with the primary education choice. Um, In Sydney, primary school zones seem to have a slightly bigger impact. The data showed more primary school catchments outpaced their respective suburb house price growth, whereas in Melbourne it was a little bit more mixed between primary and high school. In Brisbane, secondary schools appear to have more positive impact on house price growth 
compared with primary. I think there were prices in some secondary school catchment zones that increased nine times faster than in Greater Brisbane itself. So, you know, there's those sort of differences there, but overall the primary school I think is sort of it's where people really start out with their little kids, isn't it? Whatever the case, being a parent is hard and complex, isn't it? It doesn't get any easier. Amen. <laughs> Ellen, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Alice. House prices in Australia's southernmost capital have gone from strength to strength, rising to record levels in recent months despite the coronavirus pandemic. After five years of strong market activity, Hobart is continuing to outstrip the other capital cities for price growth and is also seeing the steepest rent hikes off the back of an incredibly low vacancy rate. The momentum may build further still, with Tasmania back open for business to almost all states and territories, just in time for its peak holiday season. Joining us today to discuss Tasmania's property market and broader economy is independent economist Saul Eslake. Saul, welcome to Property Unpacked. Thank you very much for having me, Alice. It's nice to be here. Now, the Hobart property market has seen some incredible growth in recent years. What's been the key driver of that, Saul? Well, at the risk of sounding like the economist, which I am, it's a matter of supply and demand. The supply of housing has been constrained in Tasmania for a long time because for a long time, there was virtually no population growth. There was very little income growth and Tasmania had much higher unemployment and an older population than the rest of the country. So there wasn't much point in builders building large number of homes. And so the supply of housing until very recently in Hobart and in Tasmania more broadly hasn't increased very much. But over the last five years or so, there's been a significant pickup in demand because there's been a significant acceleration in Tasmania's population growth. So simple supply and demand has led to this extraordinary increase in Hobart property prices to the point where the average property price in Hobart is now higher than it is in Perth or Adelaide and not too far away from where it is in Brisbane or Melbourne, which are much bigger cities than Hobart is. Mm. Saul, it's easy to sort of attribute the pandemic to perhaps a a heightened interest in Tassie, but obviously Tasmania has been increasingly drawing people from the mainland in recent years pre-pandemic. What was driving that? Was it the trend that people think, I want to go and live my best life down there and and the appeal, or was it affordability driving people down there also? Well, I think there was a combination of factors, Alice. Um, One was that the Tasmanian economy had improved significantly over the last five years. I think some other factors that have been part of it have been the change in the image of Tasmania that's been wrought over the last decade, particularly by the opening of Mona, the Museum of Old and New Art, and some of the good restaurants and hotels that have sprung up around that, and the reputation Tasmania's gained for producing some of the best wine and seafood and beef and other fruit and vegetables in the country. You go back 10, 20, 30 years and people on the mainland, you know, would think of Tasmania as being a state that was full of bogans. 
And there may have been an element of truth in that, I suppose, to be fair. But that image has changed and Tasmania is now seen as a more sophisticated place. I think we punch above our weight in the in the cultural sphere. And that's certainly drawn a different type of tourist to Tasmania. And some of those tourists, having had their eyes opened to the sort of place Tasmania now is, have thought to themselves, hmm, I could live here. Uh, some of the other trends that the pandemic has opened up, such as the capacity to work away from big cities has probably also contributed. There was undoubtedly a time when housing in Tasmania was perceived as really good value. Uh, that gap is obviously closed to some extent because of the significant outperformance of Tasmanian property prices by comparison with the rest of Australia. But you know there are still bargains by Melbourne and Sydney standards, at least, if not by, say, Adelaide or Perth standards. And there's the capacity you know, to buy something that might be a little bit run down and make a dream home out of it here in Tasmania as well. So yeah, there's a complex range of factors that I think have made people think about Tasmania in a different light from the way they've traditionally done. Mm. Now, Saul, on that note, are you expecting that now we've had the pandemic and we're sort of enduring it, will you expect that to continue for the foreseeable future? I think there are good reasons for expecting it, Alice. I mean, it's obviously going to be some time before we can see overseas migrants coming back to Tasmania. But certainly when it comes to interstate migration, well, that's actually continued at a reasonable pace, at least through the June quarter, which is the latest data that we have, although that was a period when most of Australia was subject to lockdown restrictions. There were still people moving to Tasmania in the three months end of June at not much slower a rate than they had been over the previous 12 months. It's clearly no longer retirees and older tree changes moving to Tassie. What are the job prospects like for younger Australians moving there, Saul? Well, there are still some challenges on that front, uh, unfortunately, Alice. And you know, the fact is that Tasmania doesn't have a lot of jobs to offer in sectors like finance and professional services or business services. But in other areas, um, professionally, you know, doctors, lawyers, accountants, um, nurses, teachers, plenty of opportunities for people in those professions. And likewise, for people with trade skills, you know, we've got a very strong infrastructure and commercial construction pipeline here, as well as unmet demand for housing. There's plenty of jobs on offer for tradies, electricians, plumbers, building workers, those sorts of things. Um, there are jobs in agriculture to be had. There are employment opportunities in tourism-related businesses. Um, there are also you know, lots of jobs in, in the public sector as well, and let's not discount the potential attractiveness for someone who's, say, been a, a state or Commonwealth public servant and looking for uh, an opportunity to deploy similar types of skills in providing public services, uh, but perhaps in a different environment, there are lots of opportunities for that in Tasmania too. So from an outsider's perspective, it all almost sounds like a place that's too good to be true. How do young Tasmanians feel about the future of their state, particularly ones who are trying to enter the property market, like first home buyers and potentially their parents? How do they feel knowing that how much the state is really evolving and, and in particularly through the lens the property prices going up so greatly? Well, 
I think young Tasmanians are starting to become more optimistic than they've traditionally been, uh, in part because they've seen that there are more opportunities here now than there traditionally have been. It's almost been a rite of passage, especially for Tasmanians who've either acquired a tertiary education or a trade skill, to feel that they've got to go to the mainland in order to use the skills that they've acquired or learnt and make a decent income and have a challenging and personally rewarding career. But so, Saul, how are those kids going to get, how are they going to afford to buy houses then, you know, those that younger generation of Tasmanians with, with, with the price growth, what it has been, how do they afford, you know, their, their parents are fine because they've, they've got an asset they can sell on and they can, you know, they're, they're transacting in the same market, but it's the first home buyers that the question lingers on, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And that's starting to become a serious problem in the way that it has been for 25 years in Sydney or Melbourne. Um, you know, Tasmania has the highest home ownership rate in the country, uh, although that's partly because we also have the oldest population on average in the country and home ownership rates are always higher among older age groups everywhere in Australia than they are among lower age groups. And of course, also because so many people who are in the first home buyer age groups uh, have left Tasmania and pursued that dream on the mainland where it's more expensive, but they've been able to earn higher incomes typically as well. So, you know, we're now starting to have in Tasmania the sort of conversations about the difficulties potentially confronting young first-time buyers that you know people in mainland states have been having around their barbecues and dinner tables for you know 20 30 years in the same way we're also starting to see serious conversations in Tasmania about rental affordability because you know renting a four bedroom house or a three bedroom house in Hobart has now become more expensive not only than in Perth where rents have been falling for a long time or Adelaide but uh, briefly before the pandemic uh, had been more expensive than Melbourne, which is crazy. If you think, you know, here's a city of 240,000 and it costs more to rent a three-bedroom house than it does in a city of, uh, of what, almost five million. Uh, it just seems crazy. Mm. So it's been really fascinating talking to you. Thank you for your time. And it's an interesting state for us to look at because as with many things in property, there are obviously winners from this situation and some people who are find it a lot more challenging as this market continues to evolve. So thank you for shedding some light on it with us today, Saul Lake. It's been an absolute pleasure, Alice. Thank you for having me as part of your series. Another year of the block is over. And just like the unprecedented year that was, there was an equally unexpected auction result to match. Winners Jimmy and Tam became the show's first millionaires, pocketing a whopping $1.066 million in prize money. The combined winnings of the contestants reached over $3.3 million, which is the largest of any season before. So how did it all happen? Joining us today is Jemima Clegg, Associate Editor of Domain Review, who was reporting at the auctions. Jemima, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Jemima, have you come down from what sounds like an electric auction on the weekend? In summary, what happened at these auctions that meant five homes in Brighton saw such staggering results? Well, electric is right, Alice. It was quite the shock, actually, I think, when all these results started to come in at each auction. 
And I guess it was just a real mixture of some very invested emotional buyers and, of course, an invested investor with very deep pockets that made these auctions just take off and saw some really great results for each of the contestants. So in the end, this investor that you're referring to actually bought three of the five properties. Is that correct? That's right. He's a guy named Danny Wallace. He's an IT entrepreneur. And in fact, he's no stranger to the block. He also bought Mitch and Mark's house last year. And I believe one of the properties way back in 2012 as well. So Sarah and George, Daniel and Jade and Harry and Tash all saw their houses purchased by Danny Wallace. So he's like the ultimate blockhead, isn't he? And that he's obviously got quite, you know, a love for these properties and potentially knows what a smart investment they can sometimes be. I think that really is what it is. And he even quipped during one of the auctions, it's cheap, he said. So, you know. (laughs) At $4 million, no less. (laughs) Now, Jemima, so he bought three of the houses and the other two were purchased by who? Well, they were really quite emotional buyers. Um, Jimmy and Tam's buyer, let's start with them. They had an amazing result. They took home $966,000 from the actual auction. Of course, their $100,000 prize money on top of that. Their buyer was a young woman who had recently moved to Australia from New York She just wanted the property. Jimmy told me later that he took her through the day before the auctions just as registration was about to close and she just loved it. She said, I may not necessarily have done pink tiles myself, but I love what you guys have done with it and I really want your property. So she found herself up against Danny Wallace and she took home the day in the end. Mm. And what about the fifth property? Who was that purchased by? That buyer was just another really emotional buyer. She was um, a local and just very attached to the property. This was Luke and Jasmine's house. And in fact, it was the first auction that went because they had some of the most interest from buyers, um, including all the buyers advocates who were there on behalf of clients. Nicole Jacobs was there right to the end. There were 70-something bids by the end of this auction. It was a marathon, came down to $1,000 bids. And, yeah, the the owner-occupier picked it up. She just really wanted it that badly. Jemima, were the homes good value purchases, would you say? Look, I think when you're looking at the Brighton market, and you've got to remember that this is one of the most expensive suburbs in Melbourne, it has the third highest median house price in the city at the moment. And as far as, you know, all the experts have told me, yes, they were actually very good value for money. You would be paying about $2.1 million for the for the land, another $2 million for the build. And then, of course, we can't forget all of those furnishings that come with these properties up to the value of about $500,000. Really speaking, when Danny Wallace said they're cheap, he really wasn't lying. Jemima, and what can we expect for next year's season of the block? Next year's block is not going to be too far away from Brighton. It's in a neighbouring suburb of Hampton. It's actually a bunch of properties on a cul-de-sac. One of them was owned by one of our favourite buyers advocates, Nicole Jacobs, who always bids at the block each year. She's arranged for her property to be sold to the producers as well as some of her neighbours' properties. Well, yes, Jemima, we are certainly looking forward to seeing what is in store for 2021. Jemima, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks, Alice. Thanks for having me.
You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and look out for further episodes dropping every Thursday. If you have a property story you'd like to tell us or we could help answer a question, drop us an email at propertyunpacked@domain.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by NAB, more than money. This episode was produced by Adrian Lowe, Kate Burke and Danielle Giannopoulos. It was edited and mixed by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au. Talk to you next week. Thank you.